Well, we've been in the book of Ruth the last two weeks. This is week three. And uh, we're gonna look at a kinsman redeemer here. A good man is hard to find. Amen? Have you ever heard that phrase before? A good man is hard to find? We've heard it in our culture. Just for the record, there will never be a man good enough for my daughters. They will live in my house forever. Honestly, though, I'm, I'm very thankful that my girls don't think too much about marriage at this point. I know it's coming. We're gonna delay it for a few more decades and then we'll be good. You maybe have heard people in the past or maybe you've said yourself, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look for the biblical pattern of dating. I'm gonna go to the Bible for the biblical pattern of dating. And we need to be careful when they say these phrases of what we mean. Are you looking for the biblical pattern of dating? Do you go to the book of Hosea where God says, marry a prostitute? No, no, we don't go there. We avoid that book, right? What about Isaac or Esther? Have you read the book of Esther? How did she get a husband? Or Jacob working seven years, then being duped and working another seven years? Is that a good biblical pattern of dating? Do any of these lay out a good pattern? Which one are you gonna use? Maybe you're convinced that the Bible lays out the perfect story of how to find a husband. So maybe you go to Ruth chapter three. Maybe that's the pattern you want. Well, we're gonna look at this this morning. And, and I think when you're all said and done, you're not gonna want this pattern of dating for your kids or your grandkids. And really in life, we should be looking for principles of what scripture says, what a husband and wife should be. We should be looking for that and understanding what, what it means to be a husband and a wife. The Bible is filled with, with scandal, though. And, and as we read it, especially in Ruth chapter three, we become a little uncomfortable. What we have here in Ruth is scandalous. A Moabite woman in this chapter who's going to propose marriage to an Israelite man. This is unheard of. Boaz, though, knows women from scandalous backgrounds. Do you know who Boaz's mother is? If you look in Matthew chapter one, the genealogy is given to us about Jesus Christ. Let me read, read just a line from it, that's the whole thing. Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. So Boaz knew scandal. His mom was Rahab, and who was Rahab? She was a harlot that God used in his glory when Joshua's men were, were, were escaping, she, she hid them. So Boaz knew scandalous women. The gospel is scandalous. It goes against the, 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 the grain of what our life in the world is. And God continues to use people that the world would reject. And we'll see that again this morning in Ruth chapter three. So if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to Ruth chapter three and follow with me as I read. Verse one, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. 
And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of God. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we again thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and to worship together as the body of Christ here in Edgewood. We thank you for your word that we can worship in the reading of your word, again, reminded of what your word says, and now we have the opportunity to worship through the preaching of your word. We ask, God, that you would give understanding to us as we hear your word. I pray that you would take your word and, and bring conviction to our hearts and our lives. God, I ask that we do not leave this place the same way when we came in. Help us to be different closer to you, walking with you closer. I pray that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word. For I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. There are three things I want you to see in this chapter here in Ruth 3. First is the plan of Naomi, verses one through six. Second is the proposal by Ruth. And third is the pledge by Boaz. The plan by Naomi, the proposal by Ruth, the pledge by Boaz. So the plan. How can a woman like Ruth find a husband in Israel? She is an outsider, if you remember. She is from the land of Moab. She is a, a part of a country that's against Israel. Nowadays, if this was the case, she would run an advertisement in the Bethlehem Times, right? Widowed Moabitess seeks hardworking man of character for long walks and barley fields and quiet evenings by the fire. He must want children and be able to love bitter mother-in-laws. Is that what it would read? It might work, might not. So the chapter begins with this dilemma. Ruth is unmarried and she needs a husband. And so Naomi responds to this. As much of two months has passed, it's the end of chapter two, in the beginning of chapter three. If you remember, chapter one ends and they're going back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest. The harvest usually lasts about two months in time. Chapter two kind of gives you that first 
day or so when she's out. And so the, the harvest is finished now in chapter three. So there's a lot of time that has passed and chapter three begins. And we don't know at this point what the relationship is between Ruth and Boaz. We looked at their first date last week in chapter two. And by Naomi's words, she is single, still living with Naomi. Uh, Naomi, though, in the beginning of this chapter, seems different than she was last chapter. It seems as though she's coming out of her depression because she's no longer just focusing on herself. She has experienced so much. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's lost the dream that she thought would come to fruition there in Moab, and she's come back. She's come back beaten. She maybe now is beginning to understand, as God has continued through these chapters to provide again and again for her life, She's beginning to understand that she was wrong. She was wrong to blame God and think that he was out to get her. Perhaps she had begun to recognize her failure to take responsibility for her actions and then to repent. Repentance draws our attention away from ourselves and to others. And we see this in her. We are changed through repentance. Bitterness in our life drives us inward a self-absorbed depression that you see in Naomi. Well, true repentance gives us and motivates us to start to serve others. And this is Naomi's response here in chapter three. She says in verse one, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Has not Boaz, our relative, with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. The phrase seek rest is very common to describe security and comfort as a woman would find in the arms of a loving husband. And Naomi has become matchmaker. How many of you enjoy being the matchmaker? Raise your hand so other single people can avoid you. (laughs) She's the matchmaker. And she has a plan. She's concocted this plan that, that she feels is going to work. And she mentions Boaz, who is their kinsman redeemer of the family, which basically means he is the eligible bachelor for Ruth and their family. And we're going to look at this in more detail in chapter four, so you have to wait till next week. So Naomi lets Ruth understand the process at the end of the harvest, that he's going to be at the threshing floor. He's going to be winnowing barley tonight. How does she know that he'll be there? We're not told. It begs the reason she understands the end of the process of what harvesting was and what needed to happen in the end. But she just knows. She says he's going to be there at the threshing floor tonight. You know, at the end of this harvest, it would be a secluded area, probably on the other side of a hill at the end of evening, and they would take their pitchforks and they would toss the barley up in the air and the wind would come and blow away the chaff and the grain, which is heavier, would fall to the ground. This is winnowing. This is what's happening. And Naomi knew the process, but how did she know that Boaz would be there doing this? We're not told. And when I read that, I see the providence of God. I see God's fingerprints right in this story. Somehow, she knows he's going to be there. So Boaz will be there. What's next, Naomi? Look at verse 3 and verse 4. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. This is where the story becomes shady to put it in a term. If you're reading this story in the original context in Hebrew, you begin to blush at what's happening, what she's saying. If you're reading out loud and your children are walking by, one of the spouses is reaching out to cover their ears. This is not appropriate. 
You're, you're thinking, how could you be saying this, Naomi? If you're watching a movie, it's, it's kind of like, uh, I'm gonna steal this from Ryan Wood. I'll give him credit. Ryan Wood had this when he preached through it, but like a movie in an office scene, okay? And the, and the, the year is done, and the, uh, the owner of this business decides to throw a, a party, good food, a good time of fellowship. The evening's winding now, and the office manager goes to his office. It's late. He decides to sleep in his couch, closes the door, and is going to rest. And then next, you see the office assistant walking behind him, opening the door, walking in, closing the door, and you see the shades drawn. It doesn't look good. This is what it would have been like for the original readers. They would have gotten to that point and said, I need to hit the fast forward button. Where's it at? They're blushing. They're thinking, this, is, this isn't good. This doesn't sound good. This doesn't sound right. What is Naomi doing? Why is Naomi saying this? Why is she encouraging Ruth to descend? What's going on here? Well, I'm gonna do my best to unpack this verse because uh, I think when we unpack a little bit more, we're gonna see all that's playing out here and God's sovereignty in the midst of this. But he gives Ruth some, some instructions here in verse three. The first step he gives to Ruth, he says to her, Ruth, take a bath. Really deep theological stuff here. Ruth, you smell like a junior high boy. Go shower. And, and understand, she's been working the fields probably this whole time. They didn't have showers like us. They didn't do that every day. So she's just working and working and continuing it. And she's saying, Ruth, you smell bad. So go smell better and bathe. Second step, she says to Ruth, Ruth, put on some perfume. Men like a good, subtle perfume. Go get some perfume. Maybe the leading brand at that time was midnight at the threshing floor. <laughs> Spray some on. Third step, wear a pretty dress. So he says, get your best cloak, Ruth. You know, that, that one that highlights your eyes. I don't know what they say, actually. And maybe you're here this morning and, and in your prudish Christianity, you're gonna email me this week, angry, because I said this, but I'm not endorsing that women should only be concerned with their looks. This is not what Naomi's endorsing. Preparing yourself to look beautiful and preparing yourself to look seductive are very different. We do not see that with Naomi. Naomi is not saying to her, go seduce Boaz. That's not what she's saying at all. Instead, what she's laying out here is the pattern in Old Testament following a time of mourning. If you were to read 2 Samuel 12, and I would encourage you to do that this week, you can see King David as he does the same Thing, the same three steps. He washes himself, he puts on oil, and he puts on his best clothes. And in 2 Samuel 12, it's, he does this to signify that the end of the time of mourning when his son died has completed. It's the finishing of this. And this, I believe, is what Naomi is instructing Ruth. I believe at this point, in all the weeks of leaving Moab and working the field, she has continued to wear her garments of widowhood and which communicates to everyone else, she's still mourning. Like, don't come and ask her out on a date. Don't ask this. And Naomi says to her, go wash, clean yourself, put on perfume, change your clothes because you are eligible for marriage. Plus, she'll smell better. And once she's set to go, he encourages her now to go down to the threshing floor and keep yourself hidden from everyone. 
And then watch Boaz as he finishes his meal and his drink. And what you understand also, the author is not saying, wait until Boaz is drunk. He doesn't say that at all. Just so you know, women, just take note of this. Men are in better moods when they're satisfied with a good meal. So log that away. Can I get an amen from men? That's what, that's what she's saying here. He's, he's had a good end of the season. God has produced and provided so much, and he has a good meal, and he had a drink. And what we drink at our table is water. So I'm, I'm thinking that's what he had in some ways. He might have had an alcoholic beverage, but that's not what the text says. It says he ate his meal and was satisfied. And in a good mood, he lies down to sleep. And now it's crucial for Ruth. This is crucial advice. She says, don't make the mistake of watching the wrong guy. Like, pay very close attention, Ruth, on Boaz. Look for Boaz. Watch Boaz. And then when you see that he's laid down asleep, go and uncover his feet and lie down. And I'll be honest, again this morning, this is where it gets incredibly difficult for Bible students. When you get into this next little section here in Hebrew, it's incredibly difficult. These, there's three words in Hebrew right here filled with sexual overtones. Uncover, feet or legs, and lie down. Incredibly difficult. I spent a number of hours this week looking at this verse because as you study this in the Hebrew, and I am no Hebrew scholar, not even close, what Naomi is telling her is not kosher. There's, 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 things are raising up with the listener saying, this doesn't make sense. At least it seems that way. So what is Naomi telling her to do? You know, the, the, as I said earlier, the, the effect of these words would cause the listener in their mind to race in places it shouldn't go. Uncover his legs, lie down. Naomi, what are you saying here? What are you suggesting for Ruth? Well, what's Ruth's response in verse five? She says, all that you say, I will do. She does this, and as the audience is, is reading it, they're asking the question, what is happening here? And there's a struggle. You know, are you sure you want the biblical pattern of dating, folks? You know, Ruth 3 is not a good example here. And she does, and she goes and does what she says in verse 6. And at this point, we're, we're thinking of skipping this chapter and going to the next. You know, have you ever rented a movie based on someone else's recommendation and you're sitting there watching and all of a sudden something comes on and you're like, well, they didn't tell me that. I'm gonna fast forward now or take it out. Well, this is where it is in Ruth chapter three. Naomi is putting Ruth in danger on a human level. Naomi's instructions in verse four are completely ambiguous and even more so in the Hebrew language. Almost all of it can be misapplied in some way. Ruth is putting both her reputation and her personal safety in serious danger. Do you remember when this story takes place? It takes place in the time of the judges, right? At the end of Judges 21, and what was the thinking of people then? Do whatever is right in your own eyes. And if you remember in chapter two, Boaz warns Ruth about what would happen for foreign women to be working out in the field. And the danger here is incredible. Ruth could have mistaken Boaz for another man, could have found someone else. And the level of danger is even more heightened at night, especially in this time frame, in this culture, 
It was normal at night for prostitutes to come into this threshing floor for other workers. And here's Ruth. It's a dangerous plan. So how will it turn out? Do you want to know? Should I stop here? Keep going. All right. My second point is the proposal of Ruth. Look at verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So here's the story. Boaz finishes eating. He had a good year, a profitable year, and he's satisfied. He has good food now, good work. God has blessed him, and he goes, and he lies down at the end of a heap of grain. And so put yourself now in the sandals of Ruth, okay? You're Ruth now. You're, you're probably hiding out in some crevice where no one can see you. You've been watching Boaz. I mean, like, really watching Boaz. There's other men there. You want to make sure you have the right guy. So you're watching Boaz. Your eyes are on Boaz. You are watching your man, ladies, okay? You're watching your man. Your eyes are focused on your man. And this has to be romantic, right? I'm not sure if it is actually, but women, is it romantic? I don't know. I'm guessing it is. It's intense nonetheless. You're there, you're hiding. You don't want anyone to see you and you're watching your man and, and, and there's noises outside. You ever been that way when you're focused on something and everything else, it seems like it's a distraction and moths are all over the grain because they're trying to get their food and you're swiping away, realizing you probably put on too much perfume at that point. And you're focused on your man. Because if you lose him in the midst of other guys, you're in trouble. And you wait. And you're quiet. Probably kneeling down. You're just focused. You're trying to make sure that's the guy. And, and you think that he's asleep. You know, you're, you're looking from a distance. You think he's asleep. Now, parents that are here that have had young children or have young children, you know what I mean, right, by that? When this happens on a regular basis in our house, something happens with their kid, they don't want to go to bed or they wake up in the middle of the night and they're crying and you go in and you soothe them, right? You know the process, parents, right? You're there, you're, you're rubbing their back and you're there just sitting there going, all right, fall asleep, fall asleep, fall asleep. And then you take the hand off the back slowly, guys, slowly. New parents, just so you know this, there's a whole detailed plan for this. And you're, you're pulling it off because you're thinking, please don't wake up. I'm really tired, I wanna to go to bed. And you're now tiptoeing out. You know, you're waiting to see if that child is asleep so you can escape out of the room as quickly as possible. Well, it's the reverse here for Ruth. She's watching her man and thinking, is he asleep? Is, is he asleep? Are the rest of the people, are they, are they in my way? You know, and so she starts to make her way, creeping out there, making her, her, her way towards Boaz, tiptoeing, hoping that he is really asleep so that she isn't, Wake him up. She thinks he's asleep. He looks like he's asleep. She hears him snoring and says, yeah, he's asleep. So she comes softly and covers his feet and she lays down. This is intentionally ambiguous for us. We don't know how she's laying down. I mean, I looked at all sorts of commentaries, looked at the Hebrew. I don't know. Is it perpendicular? Is it parallel? I don't know. I'm not going to speculate. You're not going to get an answer out of me. I don't know. All I know is she lays down at his feet. It's a provocative picture in the Old Testament, the language of Hebrew. And, and I want you to make sure you understand this, okay? I want you to hear me clearly. Nothing happens here that would call into question Ruth's purity. Nothing happens. 
Nothing happens in this scene that calls into question her nobility. But the scene is intense. She's lying down now. I'm sure she's not sleeping. She's probably afraid of what's going to happen next. You know, midnight rolls around now and something startles Boaz. Most commentaries say it's probably the breeze because his legs are uncovered. And you've got your legs uncovered. The breeze comes and, and it comes and startles him. And he turns over because he's cold and all of a sudden there's a person next to him. And he's startled. You know, he's probably shaken. Parents, I come back again. You know what this is like, right? On Sunday afternoons, I come home, I take a nap, I fall asleep on the couch, and I'm only asleep for a few minutes, and then I got a kid right there in my face. Dad, I need juice. And my heart leaps out of my chest because I didn't expect her right there. Well, here's Boaz, fast asleep. He's tired. Something startles him, and all of a sudden, boom, Ruth is right next to him. I'm sure Ruth is not sleeping. And he says to her in this, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And here we see Ruth goes away from Naomi's instructions. She goes away from what her mother-in-law said. She talks to him. She doesn't leave the situation ambiguous anymore. She is direct and clear about her intentions. Ruth is a woman of character and wanted to make things extremely clear for Boaz. Her goal was commitment for marriage, not a single night of passion. How do we know that? Look at her response to his question. You know, in the ancient world, a commitment was symbolized by the gesture of covering someone with a corner of one's robe. This is the equivalent of, of giving an engagement ring. And Ruth is saying to Boaz, she is proposing marriage. This is what she's doing. It's forward, to say the least. It's entirely countercultural for a woman to propose to a man at this time, or for a younger person to an older person, or to a field worker to a field owner. And yet God delights in this, using people that confound the norm. Naomi's plan was for her to be silent. But here we have Ruth calling an audible and blurts out, her entire heart for Boaz. And what she says here to Boaz is extremely significant. It's interesting. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. I want you to make note of this. And somehow mark this verse if you can, because this is a reference that goes throughout this book. Back in Ruth chapter two, when Boaz is speaking to Ruth and her um, what she's done for her mother-in-law, and he's basically praying a blessing over Ruth. This is what he says in Ruth chapter two, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's the same words that we have here in 3, 9. And so Ruth is saying to Boaz, remember your blessing that you had for me out in the fields? that you prayed that God would spread his wings over me? Well, now is the time for you to be an answer to that prayer. And you gotta love it when a wife uses scripture on a husband, right? She's saying, Boaz, you, you are the provision of God in my life. And for the line of Elimelech and for Naomi, it's you, Boaz. 
You spread your wings of protection over me. You are my kinsman redeemer. She just proposed to him. And how will Boaz respond? You know, she just broke all the rules. A Moabite proposing marriage to an Israelite, a woman to a man, a worker to the owner of the field, a younger person to an older person. And again, this is, this is all happening in the culture and the time of the judges. When everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Boaz could have taken advantage of her. This is incredibly risky for Ruth. He could have done something to her and then blamed it all on her and walked away completely scot-free and she would have been in trouble because no one, no one would, re- would, would think that she was telling the truth. She's a Moabite. They would believe him. What will Boaz do? How will he respond to this? He could be offended. How dare you propose marriage to me? That's my right as a man. There could have been a number of responses. So what will Boaz do? Is is he really the man that the author says that he was in chapter two? Is he really a worthy man? Is he really an upright man? Is he really a holy man? Look at verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen. Know that you are a worthy woman. And at this point, we can breathe a sigh of relief. Boaz is who everyone else says he is. He is that man. And as I read this, I realized we need more Boaz in our world. We need more Ruth, too. Men and women who were willing to forgo the allure of sex and live purely in purity for the glory of God. Men and women who are set on obeying God. Men and women who are willing to forgo forgo the dating game, looking and searching for a spouse. Instead, men and women that are content on living for God until the day comes when God brings in the one that he has chosen for them. Boaz and Ruth are a beautiful picture for us. The stars are above their head. The quietness of the night. He desires her. He wants to marry her. He wants to be committed to her. She desires him. She wants to marry him. They're close to each other. And By the grace of God, nothing physically happens because of righteousness. He doesn't touch her. His heart is fixed on God. Boaz is a God-soaked man. And he's willing to wait. And her life is in the hands of God. She looks for God to provide. I want to divert just for a moment here. Kids that are here, students, single people, I want you to, to hear me, okay? You can live this way by the power of God. We can live in a way like Boaz and Ruth. You can live pure in relationships. It isn't impossible, but even, even more so, if, you're, if you've lived in a way that's been impure, because of the gospel, you can have forgiveness. God forgives you. 
If you repent, if you turn from it, God can forgive you and then set your path straight. And so from there, you can live pure lives. God doesn't, and this is the pattern of God throughout scripture with, with Rahab and with others. God doesn't just throw them out when they sin. God redeems them. He makes them new and he uses them for his honor and glory. So don't for a second think, I've, I've sinned in this way and God can't have anything to do with me. That's not God's plan. That's not God's purpose. That's not what God does throughout scripture. He continues to do this. But for those of you that have continued to live pure, I would encourage you to stay that path. If you're single here this morning, you should be praying less about God showing you who the right husband or who the right wife is and pray more about being the right kind of husband, about being the right kind of wife. You know, we see in this pattern that Boaz, he, he wasn't praying for a wife. He wasn't doing that. He was praying, he was training himself to be an honorable man. He wasn't out looking for a spouse, he was training himself to be holy in his conduct. That is why he doesn't take advantage of Ruth. It wasn't just happenstance. This is a God-soaked man. He did what he knew, and what he knew is he needed to live holy. And the, you see the response here. He doesn't take advantage advantage of Ruth. And so if you're as a single praying, pray to that end. Train yourself to be the right spouse. Train yourself in righteousness. Because as you do that, it won't matter as much who the right person is. So I want to encourage you, single people, dump your list of 17 things that you need in a spouse and make a list of the 17 things that you need to be to be a godly spouse. God will honor that. Be like Boaz. Be like Ruth. So Boaz's response, what's his response in all this? It really is incredible. I, I believe he's stunned that she's even interested in him. She's giving up everything for someone. She's giving up everything for someone. And it's not Boaz. Ruth is giving up everything for her mother-in-law, Naomi. If, if you remember, when I started the book of Ruth a few weeks ago, I believe that this book talks about, it primarily centers around Naomi. I don't think it's a book about Ruth or Boaz. I think it's about Naomi. It's, it's all about her. It's pointing to her and what God is going to do for her. And, and Boaz is saying to Ruth that this kindness is even greater than your first kindness. The word kindness is hest in Hebrew. It's a beautiful word. It means love, a loyal love, a sacrificing love. You know, we need T-shirts made up with this, just this word, hest. You want some conversations when you're out and about, wear a T-shirt that says hest on it because people are gonna be like, what's that mean? And you can say, it's a beautiful thing. It means loyal love. It's what our marriages should be. It's the picture of God to his people. Loyal love, hest. And Ruth's love for her mother-in-law is incredible. It's noble, it's worthy. Boaz is saying that her first act of love was her willingness to leave her country, 
her people, her family, and to move everything to go with Naomi to her country. And this first act of love was incredible in itself. Now, this last act of love is even more incredible. Why? He, he answers that. He says that she hasn't gone after young men, whether rich or poor. She could have gone after younger men. Humanly speaking, if she wants to give Naomi a child, and she does, it would have been more wise to find a younger man to make sure she would have a child. She could have chosen a man simply because of passion, because she was attracted to him, because she just loved it, it flowed out of him. That's, she could have done that. It would have been maybe a poor person because it didn't matter. She could have chose a, a man that was rich because she really wanted to have a good life after suffering a hard life. She could have gone after anyone. Instead, she chooses because of Hest, because of loyalty. She was loyal to Naomi. Naomi wanted Ruth to have a husband, and Ruth wanted Naomi to have a grandchild. It's beautiful. And Boaz knows this and promises that he will do all that she has asked. And why? Why does he promise this? Because everyone, it says all the townspeople know who she is. And what do they call her? They call her worthy. Does that ring a bell at all in the book of Ruth? Who else do we know of that's worthy? It's Boaz. It's pretty cool, right? She's called the same thing that Boaz is in chapter two. They're both worthy. They're a perfect match. And at this point in the story, you can hear the wedding bells ringing in the background. They're gonna go to the chapel and get married. I'm not gonna sing that song. You're safe. I mean, this couldn't work out any better at this point. Things have fallen into place. Uh, it's beautiful. And, and as a reader, you're reading it thinking, finally, things are going well. Things are working out for Ruth and all that she's gone through. And they're gonna get married. It's, it's all gonna work out perfectly, right? And then we come to verse 12. And this is Boaz. And he says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. What? Seriously, Boaz? I mean, couldn't Naomi had told her this too? I mean, shouldn't he have she known this? I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, have you ever seen someone, do any of you watch new, or the sports and you yell at the TV when something doesn't go right? I'm, I'm the only one? Come on, guys, seriously. Like a bad call and you're like, seriously? And my daughter's looking at me like, what's wrong? And I'm like, the refs. I mean, I know this full and well. I went to a football game last year where the Lions were about to beat the Seahawks and the game ended by a blown call by the refs. And I'm up in the stands screaming, what? Are you kidding me? And I'm surrounded by Seahawks fans who are ready to kill me. And that's how I am in this story. At this verse 12, I get here and I'm like, seriously? It all is gonna fit together. And now you say there's yet another redeemer closer than I? This is Boaz. This is the type of guy that Boaz is. He clearly wants to marry Ruth. He wants to provide for her. He wants to be the one. He can see it all lining up. He wants to be that guy. He wants to be the redeemer for not only her, but for the family. But he's honorable. He's worthy. He respects the law that God has set up and he's going to work within that law. 
He could have been shady. He could have just said, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to marry her. He had a choice again to either sin or not sin or be obedient. And Boaz doesn't disappoint. Verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Boaz is stepping up to make sure that Ruth will be taken care of, whether he will be the redeemer or someone else. And we're gonna find out about this guy, this, this redeemer, this other guy next week, Lord willing. I'm sure at this point, neither of them can sleep. But what's gonna happen? You know, the, the, the question's racing through their minds. Boaz is about to go into the city and declare his intentions to redeem this family. Ruth, who in the next 24 hours does not know who she's gonna marry. How would you like that, women? You propose marriage to one and he says, hold on a second, I gotta check something out. Boaz isn't done showing Ruth and showing Naomi his intentions to serve him. Look at verse 14. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went into the city. Your version like mine probably said that she went into the city, but it's not an, a, an accurate translation of the Hebrew master, uh, the text. It should read, he went into the city. And it was Boaz who left to go and Ruth goes back home. They both wait until morning. Uh, it's still dark out though and he instructs her to leave without being noticed as to not bring a, a bad impression. And, but he does something again, it's quite incredible. He does something for her and the family to show them that he's, he has good intentions. He asks her to hold out the cloak that she's wearing and gives her six measures of barley. Do any of you know how much six measures of barley is? Any guesses? 30 pounds, close. Not really. 80 pounds. 80 pounds of barley. Again, I carried a 60-pound bag of concrete this week and thought I was going to fall over. And here's Ruth with 80 pounds of barley in her cloak to carry home. I don't know how she carried it over her back, on her head. I'm not sure. But again... Ruth is buff. She's a strong woman. Don't mess with Ruth. She can carry some serious grain. And it's amazing what he does. And it leads to my last point this morning, the pledge of Boaz, the pledge by Boaz. Now she heads back home and verse 16 says, and Naomi, we forgot about her, she's home. Remember, she sent her out. And I'm sure she's just a frantic mess at this point. She has no idea what's going to happen. There was no such thing as text messaging back then. It's not like Ruth was on her cell phone updating her status on Facebook saying complicated. You know? A few of you got that. There's no Twitter. There's no Instagram. We couldn't follow play by play of how this was going to go. There's no word. She goes home and she walks into the door. And Naomi has quite a response for her. She says, how do you fare, my daughter? Literally, Naomi asks, who are you, my daughter? Now, she's not asking that because her eyesight has gone bad and she can't see her. 
Now she's asking the question, who are you engaged to? Who are you a part of now? She wants to, to hear the status. She wants to know what's happened. And Ruth explains things to her. And then the author fills us in with some of the conversation that we didn't get to hear earlier. Ruth says, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. We've seen this phrase before already in this text, haven't we, in this book? Empty-handed. This was the state of Naomi, right? When she came back in Ruth 1, she says to everyone, I've come back empty. She says it a couple times. She's, she's making sure everyone knows that she's empty. And the picture here for us this morning is beautiful. The author in, in God's sovereign design of the book gives us the picture of Ruth coming back from Boaz with not just grain. She comes back with a promise to redeem, to see to it that her family is redeemed. And the message that Ruth is bringing from Boaz to Naomi is, you're not empty. You're not empty at all. And here's proof. 80 pounds. He will see to it that they will be taken care of. Verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And the chapter ends with these two women. Frantic, I'm sure, in some ways, sitting at home. They don't have a television to occupy their time. They don't have Netflix. They just have to wait they're not sure how they're going to survive. They're waiting. They, they hope it's Boaz. And as I said before, this book is laid out in four different acts. Like you were to go and watch a play. And, and, and so picture with me, this is act three closing. The curtains closed and act four is to begin. And, and Ruth and Naomi aren't there. The center stage is Boaz. And in chapter four, we'll see it. The things are no longer in the hands of Ruth and Naomi. They have submitted themselves now to Boaz, and they wait, and they will see. All throughout this book and this story, there's been a redeemer closer than Boaz. There's been a redeemer stronger than Boaz. There's been a redeemer more worthy than Boaz, a redeemer for Ruth and Naomi, who is hovering in the shadows of this story, behind all of the human actions, reaching out to his beloved. And he's showing grace upon grace. A question came to my mind during study this week. What am I willing to risk and for what? What about you? What are you willing to risk and for what? You know, we're all willing to risk things in life. Some of you are willing to risk more than others are comfortable with in this room for the purpose of having fun or receiving a promotion or having a home or having a family, people are willing to put up with all sorts of discomforts and make serious, costly risks. But what are you willing to risk when it comes to the gospel? Are we willing to lose our comfort? Are we willing to lose our protection and safety for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing to lose some vacation time? 
like some of the people that left yesterday morning to go to Mexico who gave up vacation to serve God in Mexico for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to risk your reputation for the sake of the gospel? Or are you more comfortable hoarding the gospel to yourself? This is good news and it's my news and I'm not sharing it. That's what Francis Schaeffer calls our guilty silence. Never mind the risk of losing everything to go at midnight at a barley field, risking your safety, risking your reputation. We're too afraid to be thought of as weird by a friend when we see our allegiance to Jesus Christ is more important than anything else in this world. We're afraid to say that in a conversation. We're afraid that they might think less of us now and we hold back. What if Ruth had done the same thing? What if Ruth had said to Naomi, I'm not doing that. This is too risky. I could lose everything. I could be humiliated. My reputation could be gone. I could be killed. I'm not doing that. Instead, she, she risks. And who does she do it for? Her bitter mother-in-law. Because of loyalty. Naomi did not deserve Ruth. She did not deserve her constant kindness. She did not deserve her loyalty. Naomi didn't deserve it. But because of Ruth and Boaz's love for her, they treated her with grace. And because of them, she would experience the joy that God would bring into her life. And I want you to remember this morning that someone risked something to come to bring the gospel to you. They risked it so that you would hear the good news. Don't forget that. God didn't risk anything for us. God cannot risk. He knows the beginning from the end. He knows how everything's going to turn, so nothing's a risk for God. But he does love. And what we see again in this story of Ruth and Boaz is love, real love, hest, this kindness, this covenant faithfulness, the picture of the love of God. And the love of God takes its shape of the coming of Jesus Christ going to earth. Jesus left the perfect fellowship of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He, he, he didn't need anything. It was perfect. And he left that to come to us, the wretched human race. The same love of God took Jesus all the way through life and to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus Christ suffered. And he endured not for himself, but for those of us who don't deserve it. He died for the sins of his people. He was abandoned by God the Father when he turned his face away from his son because my sin, because of your sin, was on his son. Jesus didn't risk anything in life, but he gave up his life willingly for us. Do you know this love of God Have you experienced this love of God? 
He came to cover you with his robe. He is your redeemer. No matter what you've done in this life or where you've been, Christ came for you as your redeemer. And this morning, I implore you to trust him, to trust everything in your life to him. It will be worth it all. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for sending your son to come and redeem his people. He bought us back from the slave market of sin. Without Jesus Christ, we would have no hope and he came to rescue us. God, help us never to grow tired of remembering this, of reminding ourselves of this, and help us, God, to risk our comfort to share this gospel with those that need to hear it. And I pray you give us strength and courage. God, I thank you for the life of Boaz and Ruth. I thank you for the picture, the beautiful picture of purity in their relationship. And I pray for those that are here today, the singles in our congregation that are waiting for the one that you have for them. I pray that you'd keep them pure. I pray for those ones here today that have fallen, that have sinned. Help them, Father, to repent of their sins, to turn away from it, to ask for forgiveness and to live on the right path in righteousness for your sake. God, you promised to give strength for this task. God, I thank you for your incredible love for us and your patience with us. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.